Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law and Order Marathon winner is Evan Watson of Calgary, Alberta. Evan will get a marathon decal showing he watched 26.2 hours of his favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Kate Dawson. And these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspire their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today, we're looking at Law & Order Season 5, Episode 23, Pride. Sex on those bars, sex in the streets, sex with that sleazy hustler. Will your honor instruct the witness to confine his response? I'm surprised he lived as long as he did. Bastard, you killed him and now you smear him. Harder. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcasts, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for having me back, Kevin. Well, you're the only one who's willing to do this for no pay. I'm a repeat offender. Yeah, other than our actual guest who's here. Who is it? Who's not getting paid either? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Our special guest from the Tenfold More Wicked podcast, Kate Dawson. Hello, Kate. Hi. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, season three of Tenfold More Wicked is out. It's called Murder in the Court. Ooh. If America has learned one thing from Law and Order, though, is that <laughs> you can get murdered in a court <laughs> or the courthouse steps. That oh seems God. to be the most dangerous place, right? So many murders. Yes, in this case, absolutely. <laughs> Kate, what's your relationship? like with Law and Order? I have a very long and torrid relationship with Law and Order. Uh, <laughs> I saw this episode in real time, which dates me. This oh, episode wow. was yeah. from 95, 95. Yep. Correct. And I was a sophomore in college and I watched every iteration of Law and Order you can think of. So I, I, you know, I, I leaned towards the original Law and Order for sure. So I was really happy about this assignment. But I've certainly gone down the SVU pathway and the criminal intent pathway. Sure. We are simpatico. Yeah. It's a gateway drug. Is what <laughs> it is. Endless supply, apparently. <laughs> it's a slippery slope getting on uh, Logan's leather coat action. You don't know where it's going to take you. Kate, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. I think Logan and Briscoe, but I, I feel like I've read on the internet that there's a lot of opposition to that. Like they're both sort of Eeyore, Debbie Downers, and <laughs> there's a less, there's sort of a less. I don't know if there's a lightness about it, but that I would say so. I like it. They both remind me kind of of my father in a way. So. Kate, you got to love what you love. That's right. Yeah, we're, don't we're let gonna... anyone talk you out of it. That's right. 
Okay, I'll own it. Yes. I mean, if you said Amaro, we might discuss it. But exactly, exactly. It's a good pick. She says like Chester and Chester Amaro. Lake? I don't know. That's not such a bad <laughs> pick. Hey, Kate, who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Well, I mean, McCoy for sure and whoever he ends up with. I, it's really a McCoy thing for me. And mm. that's it. It's all McCoys all the time. It is. Yeah, it really doesn't she. matter who the other person is. So, <laughs> I think that it kind of there was a kind of a lull in the latter day Law and Order there, where the prosecuting sidekick was not always not always great. Listen, stop dissing Serena Sutherland. We all know <laughs> well, she's terrible. <laughs> it's a well established fact on this podcast. But yes, they weren't always great, <laughs> and that's okay. Because the storylines were always interesting, to me at least. Yeah, and at least we had somebody there to look with furrowed brow. Mm-hmm. So we knew the emotional temperature of the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, now let's take a look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order Season 5, Episode 23, Pride. Well, we see gay city councilman Richard Durbin meeting with his constituents, angry he didn't single-handedly end discrimination. It's 1995 already! Thanks, Obama. (laughs) When the meeting breaks up, shots ring out in the street. Durbin is gunned down, and the suspect's green coat and revolver are found in a trash can. Ballistics match the slug to the twenty-two in the raincoat. No prints on the weapon, and the serial number's been filed off. Well, what about the raincoat? The lab's working it up. The pockets were empty, no laundry marks. We called the manufacturer. The past year, they sold 8,000 of them in the five boroughs. So you're proposing to put an ad in at Lost and Found and hope somebody claims it? As the city's first openly gay councilman, he got a share of threats. Former cop and conservative councilman Kevin Crossley says it's bad luck for him. He just lost his favorite political target. Briscoe and Logan want to talk to Durbin's live-in boyfriend, Joe Gibbs, but he has made off with all of the clothes and the expensive art from the apartment. Through his beeper number, they find Eddie, who makes a date with Briscoe. He tells them that Durbin was going to dump Gibbs and where they can find him. Under interrogation, Gibbs says that at the time of the shooting, he was at the apartment playing Pinochle with somebody, which is also what you call it when you're playing with yourself. <laughs> Pinochle. Uh, he also says that an angry councilman Crossley stopped by wearing a green coat. Now, to verify Gibbs' alibi, they visit happily married civil servant Leo Barnett. When he's not forthcoming at the office, they visit him at home, you know, where his heterosexual wife is. Mm. With Logan pushing him, Barnett says, yeah, okay, I guess I was there at 10 o'clock when the shooting happened. Just go away. Doesn't matter much because the hairs on the green jacket weren't Gibbs. Van Buren swings her attention back to Crossley. Campaign workers say despite their really homophobic public debates, they were actually friends who saw the political value in being public foes. But Durbin was growing sick of him. Briscoe and Logan learned that Durbin was behind a redistricting plan that would eliminate Crossley's seat. And the murder weapon was traced back to a bust that Crossley did when he was still a cop. Adam Schiff, whose fuck my life headache is now this big, (laughs) says, "Okay, pick the politician up. Okay, here's how you know it's just TV. It's fake. Hmm. You got a politician who's up in front of his base and he says, Fine, if you don't like it, vote me out. (laughs) That's a battle we can win. That's your answer? Compromise? It's called politics. You don't get it, Richard. We want it all. And if you can't deliver, we'll find somebody who will. You'll have your chance next year. That's called politics, too. 
<laughs> no pandering, no nothing. I think politics would be better if people to say, hey, I'm not your monkey. Fine. <laughs> I mean, he practically gave them the date of his reelection. He was kind of like, don't worry, next year you got a shot. You want me gone? <laughs> Yeah, find somebody else who's going to okay. sit and listen to you guys yell at We'll them. send you a ballot. Give you a map to your local polling place. Here you go. There you go, exactly. <laughs> so whenever there's a high-profile case, Van Buren gets a visit from some chief who says, hey, solve it by this afternoon. Hmm. Well, we've gone public about a suspect in a green coat. Maybe someone saw him on 7th Avenue. Other than that, we don't know anything yet. How about you find out by this afternoon? You run into any obstacles, call me. Yes, sir. Not going to happen. And yet wrongful convictions don't happen in the United States. Also, she's not the cop who's actually out on the street solving the case. It seems like a lot of pressure to put on the bureaucratic boss of the two lunatics who are out there actually trying to solve the case. That's right, Katie. He's, he's like, hey, uh, I'm going to yell at you so you can yell at somebody else. Because <laughs> there's somebody been yelling at me. <laughs> so in order to get to the bottom of life in gay New York City, they go to the bottom of life in gay New York City. Uh, it means we have to go through the titillating uncomfort of watching Briscoe and Logan trying to telephone gay men. Yeah, I got I got your number through uh, Joe. What do I like? Well, uh, nothing bizarre. And then we meet Eddie the Hustler. Mm. And he is exactly what 1990s America thinks a gay prostitute is. So bad. I got to tell you, Lenny, you look just like my dad. Well, you don't look anything like my kid. <laughs> Yeah, well, you should have seen me last year. I was working the 12th Avenue Piers in drag, makeup in the Wonder Bra. Got a lot of attention from married guys. It's so bad. Everybody in this show who's gay is either deep in the closet and married to a beard wife or a hustler or a pandering politician who's, like, trying to, like, win votes. Like, there's just no, like— regular person who happens to be gay in this whole episode, except for that one uh, creepy Republican operative who's like how hard it is to be a gay conservative. He's almost like just a regular person who also happens to be gay. But everybody else, as much as this episode pretends to be anti-homophobic, this episode is so freaking homophobic, like in every possible way. And then you have Logan using using phrases like pretty boy. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yes, I actually or. wrote that down. I thought pretty boy. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. He also says very offensively. Well, that's to protect us from them, the paranoid straight community. That's who killed Richard Durbin. Hey, fella, gay, straight, undecided. Give me a name. I'll make an arrest. Gay, straight, or quote, undecided. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not how this, it works. That's not was, how any of this works. This was not the most woke time period uh, for certainly for law and order. Uh, But I applaud a law and order for even getting into this, honestly, in this time period, too. So anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. (laughs) No, no. I I would think that if you asked the writers in 1995, they thought they were doing something that was edgy. Yes. But by today's comparisons, it is a little two dimensional. And it does kind of lean a lot on some gay stereotypes that. Perhaps in 1995, a lot of Americans didn't know that they knew gay people. Kevin, so, two right. words. Yeah. Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich. It was like he was in the goddamn writer's room of this episode. He's yeah. like, we need to talk about the family values, guys. Write it into the script. Get them family values in. <laughs> but they do go to lunch with Eddie, which is always, you know, a nice icebreaker. And they're starting to talk to Eddie. And he's talking about his life as a gay sex worker. And he's got a funny line about the married men. You married, Lenny? On and off. Married guys, they like to pretend they was coming on to a woman. As soon as you get them alone, they go straight for the cookies. Now, people may think gay men and straight men are different. 
from each other and they're from different worlds. But I got to tell you, all guys go for the cookies. <laughs> Can we define cookies? No, maybe not. <laughs> what are you talking about? The I cookies. I don't want a definition of cookies. <laughs> do you mean literal cookies? Because if you mean literal cookies, yes, you do in fact go for no, the No, 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 no. It's like some guys like, you know, you got to do my nutter butter before I'll do your snickerdoodle. <laughs> what are oh, you gosh. talking about? <laughs> Jesus, you really overthought this this joke. <laughs> why, why are we still using the nutter butter? I don't know. Like, why Why is that like America is okay with it? They don't think a lot about nutter butter. It's like nut milk. It's it's like baby batter. <laughs> Listen, don't attack. Nutter butters are my favorite cookies. Let's not. Don't great. sully the nutter butter, please. Do you know what's so great about nutter butters? <laughs> Sorry, and I'm no, going to hijack your podcast. <laughs> they are shaped like a peanut. And they, they taste like peanut butter. The shape adds so much to the experience, in my opinion. It's not just the shape. It's the texture on the outside yes. of the cookie. It actually has ridges. That waffle cone texture. Yes. Oh, yeah, like a peanut shell. Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah. And it's and I actually it's think perfect. peanut butter is high quality peanut butter compared it to some is. of the other stuff. Way better than that Reese's bullshit. Way better. So what that means is, Kevin, stop yeah. talking about, about nutter butters <laughs> in any sort of derogatory way. Just move past it. Move on. <laughs> That's the movement we're trying to start right now. <laughs> you can say whatever you want about snickerdoodles or whatever. That's fine. <laughs> and then a nutter butter pride parade. It's going to be a whole movement. Oh <laughs> well, let's look at the cast. We have a couple of repeat offenders. Mm. Repeat offender. Uh, we've got the actor Daniel Hugh Kelly playing Councilman Kevin Crossley. Yes. Excuse me, I must have been asleep when the village people took over the police department. Best known as McCormick from Hardcastle and McCormick. Six Law & Order franchise appearances, including one that we covered on the show here. That was the episode called Empire, in which he was charged with murder for having Julia Roberts give a man a fatal dose of Viagra to get financing for the football stadium he wanted to build. Huh. You know, like, happens all the time. My question is, can you really overdose on Viagra? Well, it's Julia Roberts. I mean, I'm not looking at you, Kevin, with this. <laughs> <laughs> not that you would know, but it's just a question. I didn't know you could the do The guy that. had a heart problem. <laughs> Apparently, it was a well-known thing. It was a setup, blah, Death blah, by- blah. Julia Roberts guest starred across with Benjamin Bratt. It was sweeps. Oh, there you, you go. You're the rest. Death by priapism. Yeah, death by priapism. Look, we also had sleazy lawyer Charles Powell, played by Peter Garrity. Oh, he's the worst. Hadn't Mr. Durbin just thrown you out of his apartment because of your pimping and whoring? Nine Law and Order appearances, including being the professor in the Gorn versus Nicole Wallace episode Antithesis on Criminal Intent. You know him as the head of mall security in Paul Blart. We do. And for fucking Munch's ex-wife in <laughs> Homicide. Okay. Uh, just a breadcrumb here that he later leaves. We later see him on Law & Order asking Serena Sutherland to lunch, but gets turned down flat because... Is this because I'm a lesbian? She's, she's a lesbian. <laughs> no, she's not a lesbian. <laughs> yes, she is. That's why she got fired, because she was a lesbian. That's that's the one time you can say the writers thought ahead. It's like, well, this, this last scene is never going to work unless we have something. All right. Some hint. We're just supposed to think that she turned him down because he's troll. Okay. Mm. We do have a couple of hey, it's that guys. Hey, it's that guy. Can you recognize the guy playing Durbin's campaign manager? I wouldn't exactly say friends. More like each other's evil twin. That's Daniel Oreskes. He's a classic, hey, it's that guy who's been in lots of things. And I only know his name because I saw it on the screen at the credits of this episode. Oh, do you don't know what he's in right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, this is first of his nine Law & Order appearances today. He is playing a character named Moaning, 
who is Elliot Stabler's new boss on organized crime. Huh? Hmm. What goes around, man? What goes around. Remember his first line in that role is, what the hell, Elliot? What the hell, Elliot? (laughs) Which is great. You got that out of the way because that's what eventually everybody will say to him. The whole script could just be a series of what the hell, Elliot. It could be the whole script. (laughs) Not to veer off, but I am enjoying organized crime. I I think the writing has been really high and they're not just like, you know, copy, cut and paste law and order episode. I think they're really trying to deal with some of this stuff that we brought up on this podcast. Thanks for tuning in, writers. We had a moment, Kevin, where you and I were watching an episode of Law and Order Organized Crime and I turned to you and said, is this actually a good show? (laughs) (laughs) So bad. So who's playing our closeted civil servant, Leo Barnett? Anybody know? Mr. Gibb told me Durbin would be home soon. I needed to explain some charts to him, so I waited a little while. That actor's name is Robert Joy, former Rhodes Scholar, two Law & Order appearances. He spent eight seasons as Sid Hammerback on CSI New York. I have a question. Yeah. Is Rhodes Scholar on his IMDb? It is. Oh, that's so pretentious. Love it. Love it. It's like I was the valedictorian of my high school class. I mean, come on. Who cares? You're an actor now. Yeah. See, he was the pathologist on CSI New York. You'll remember him. He's the character who had the glasses with the magnet in the bridge, and he would just go snap and snap his glasses together and pull them apart. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah, that's him. All right. He's such a hey, it's that guy. He was in a movie called That Guy Who Was In That Thing. Oh, the movie about the hey, it's that guy. The hey, it's that guy's, and he was in it. That was his, he just did, he brought the glasses to the audition, and he said, oh, that's a great thing. (laughs) Who's playing Mr. Wiley, the conservative gay activist? You don't have to be heterosexual to think the welfare state destroys individual responsibility. That's Tim Hopper. Okay, what do you know him from? I only know him from The Americans, in which he played the KGB guy who was killed by the other guy. I mean, that's where I remember him from. Oh, yeah, that's really specific. A lot of the people who watch network television yeah. uh, will know him from Chicago Fire as Captain Tom Van Nobody Meter. Nobody watches that show. Yeah, they do. But it's because you don't watch network television doesn't mean that millions of people okay. don't. Don't alienate half your audience. Yeah. <laughs> I watch network television. I just don't want to watch any CBS network television. I think uh, it's been well established. It's well established that CBS <laughs> is not ever on in our house. <laughs> Anytime ever? we talk about one of those NCIS shows, uh, I know it's like number two every week for the last... Like, like 17 years. I don't know anybody who watches it. I only know most of those shows because the Patriots are in the AFC. So <laughs> CBS Sports. So on Sunday, I see promos for everything during the week. I'm like, oh, that FBI show looks interesting. Jeremy Lupo? You'll really? never see it. You'll yeah, never, never see, see it. it again. <laughs> Who's playing Eddie the Hustler? Dealers, if we're talking French, it's one thing. If we're talking Greek, it's another. That actor's name is John Cameron Mitchell. He's best known as the writer, director, and star of Hedwig and the Angry Itch. Oh, wow. Yeah, he played Hedwig both on Broadway and in the film. Hedwig is a German genderqueer glam rock singer. Uh, He based the story on his German babysitter who moonlighted as a prostitute while his dad was in the army. Huh. So pretty typical story. Yeah, I gotta you know. tell you, I think that like won some Tonys, right? I think like it won a lot of awards. I, I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it was a very well known film being, in, in gay cinema. It's a very big film. Yeah, yeah being the creator and star of an iconic Broadway show turned cult hit film, way more fucking impressive than being a Rhodes Scholar and putting that on your IMDb. <laughs> what? <laughs> Listen, being a Rhodes Scholar is impressive, but when you get to be like. 26, 27, it's no longer the thing you fucking talk about about yourself. It just isn't. It's just sad. Sorry, Rhodes Scholars out there. The many of you listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to 
I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> She's your Rhodes Scholar, aren't you? Just no, say it. Throw it out there. You're, you're, it's okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, I did have a Sisters of St. Joseph scholarship, so I guess I'll just move along. Uh, we have a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. Barnett's wife, who popped her head out oh, into yeah. the hallway. Anyone recognize her? No. Ask him again about linoleum. That's Audrey Marie Anderson. She was the lead for four seasons on CBS's action drama, The Unit. Okay, now we know why we don't recognize her. Yeah, we, we, we know why you don't recognize her. Right now she's playing Lila Michaels, codame Harbinger, on The Flash and Supergirl and Arrow. Yeah? Yeah, well, okay, well, she was actually killed by antimatter and brought back to life <laughs> with the creation of Earth-1 and Earth-Prime, wow. and then there was the battle for Crisis on Infinite Earth, and I just looked at my wife and realized I'm never getting late again. Yeah. <laughs> So they focus on Crossley, and Van Buren happens to have a videotape of their greatest debate moments. Always right. I talk about decency. Why is a gay teacher any more likely to make indecent advances to a student of the same sex than a straight teacher is to make advances to a student of the opposite sex? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What is it about you people? You people? Mm. What is it with you people? (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean, you people? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It is not handled very well, is it? 95, what a different world. Yeah, a world in which you have a, a boxy TV and VCR in yeah. your office yeah. <laughs> for just this moment. Yeah. yeah. And they had to rewind it just a little, so they put a little pencil in the hole and they just like went backwards. That like, it's a cassette. You don't do VHS tapes. <laughs> Remember how you used to get fined a Blockbuster if you didn't rewind your tape? Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just saw somebody who was wearing that T-shirt, Please Be Kind, Rewind T-shirt. Yes. Remember those? yes. Yes. And you would get fined. You would. Yeah. It also, this episode reminded me of how much I loved Kasingles. Did you own Kasingles? <laughs> what a royal waste of money that was. I mean, a Kasingle. But but I really liked it because I didn't want to, you know, zoom my way through a tape to find my favorite song. So that's right. Kasingle worked No, that's me. true. That's true. I even had like the little device that just rewound. You put the tape in and close it, and all it did was rewind. Why? Because then you wouldn't be wasting your time using the VCR for I that. Love that. So they, you could watch they had it else? at Blockbuster. If huh. somebody didn't rewind, like, well, we better go to this thing here, and we got it Sears. Efficiency. Huh. Love it. Yeah. It was yeah. 1995. Yeah. yeah. Those were the days, man. Yeah. Those were the days. When you could just be openly homophobic, you know, everything <laughs> was fine. Those were really the days. Jeez. <laughs> Logan does get to confront Crossley at his office, and Crossley's just trying to say, hey, man, this is all just politics. I might have disagreed with Durbin, but don't confuse me with some gay-bashing skinhead. Why? Because you wear a suit? Mm. Touche, Logan. <laughs> Touche. Because <laughs> you're the most woke cop in New York. Yeah, so. seriously. Pretty boy. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> but these two guys, I'll say Durbin and Crossley, they uh, certainly don't have any problems using each other. No. Politically. Until, dun, 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 there's gerrymandering. And then it all goes to crap. Goes yeah. crap. It's the least sexy murder motive ever on this show. It you is. gerrymandered me, man. You gerrymandered me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was saying that. I was thinking, like, leave it to law in order to turn redistricting into a murder plot. I mean, <laughs> it was really. Yeah. Who doesn't love seeing Adam Schiff? Nearly have a stroke over the stupid fucking case that they bring him. <laughs> I know. I mean, but his wife gives him an alibi. She loves her husband, and she hates perverts. I'm tear the city apart. 
So? So I'll call Crossley's lawyer, arrange to have him turn himself in. It wouldn't be an episode with him in it if that didn't No! <laughs> they bring him the this idea they're going to arrest a city councilman for killing another city councilman, and he looks like he has to deliver a baby sideways. <laughs> right? He's just like, ah, this is the worst fucking day of my life. Yep. Okay, go ahead, just arrest him. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> just don't talk to me about this again. <laughs> but I will say, McCoy's, McCoy's response is about the most woke response in the entire episode when Schiff says, um, you know, this is going to tear the city apart. Do you remember what McCoy says? What? He says, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's woke, man. I mean, it my is. definition of it for 95 for a that's DA right. in New York City. And Claire was like, it's 1995. People aren't homophobic anymore. <laughs> I can't believe it. Two words, Claire. Newt Gingrich. <laughs> <laughs> Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. All right, let's take a look at the second half of this episode. The indignant Kevin Crossley and his sleazy lawyer, Charles Powell, says he's being charged because of his political views. If Richard Durbin had been heterosexual, you never would have trumped up this travesty. If he'd been heterosexual, he wouldn't even be dead. What's that supposed to mean? His choice of friends, his lifestyle. Are not on trial. (laughs) At trial, McCoy and Kincaid learned that publicly, Crossley said he was fine about losing his district, but he wanted Durbin to debate him on Staten Island, where he thought he could move and win the homophobic vote. When Durbin refused, Crossley made that angry visit to the apartment. The defense serves up the jilted lover and hustler Joe Gibbs as an alternative suspect, so they need closeted family man Leo Barnett to verify the time of Gibbs' alibi. After attorney Powell signals to Barnett on cross-examination that he has information to out him as a gay cruiser, The witness changes his testimony that he can't be sure of the time. How are Jack and Claire going to explain to the jury Barnett was just blackmailed? Well, they're going to call Logan to explain that he blackmailed him first. Hmm. On the stand, the cop admits using the implied threat of outing Barnett to coerce his cooperation, which proves he was lying to tell the truth about the lie. Hmm. I, I don't fucking know why they did that. Crossley takes the stand, denies ever seeing that gun, and says he was such palsies with Durbin, he confessed his fears of his boyfriend. Objection! Hearsay sustained! <laughs> McCoy goats Crossley into, you know, being his true self, which causes the gay advocates in the room to freak the fuck out. All the gay bashing leads to a hung jury. Outside the court... An angry mob of activists swarms Crossley, and Briscoe and Logan try to shove the defendant into an awaiting car. 
in the chaos, Crossley tells Logan that they're on the same side. And that's when Logan punches the politician in front of the world. For this offense, Logan will be exiled to walk a beat on Staten Island. McCoy has a great line for those defendants that think they're on trial for their religious or political beliefs. The establishment politicians don't care about convicting me. They just need to show they're politically correct by indicting me. Mr. Crossley, you are not on trial because you didn't buy the black Barbie. He says, you're not on trial because you didn't buy the black Barbie. (laughs) What the fuck? You remember the black Barbie? I do. Did you have a black Barbie? I didn't have Barbie. It was oh, proud. okay. Fine. <laughs> I grew up with the Amish, basically, Kevin. You know that. That's I had a... I had no toys. <laughs> Just a stick. Just a stick, yep. <laughs> I had one of those corn husk dolls like Laura Ingalls did, where I just oh. like put a thing of corn in a blanket and pretended that it was a baby, you know? <laughs> You've been to my house, does it, you know? Right. <laughs> right. So they connect the gun to Crossley because 10 years earlier, he arrested a guy with 16 guns, but they only turned in 15. Yeah. Hmm. Now, if they never got the gun, how did they get the serial number? <laughs> good, really good question. Yeah, it's Real good question. That. How did they know it was even involved at all? Yeah, it just disappeared. It became his drop piece. You yeah, know? yeah. Because everyone has one. Everybody, every cop needs How one. How many must he have? If he did that every single time he seized a bunch of guns, he must have like 50 of those at his house. Here's how ingrained it is in him. He hasn't been a cop in 10 years and he still has his drop piece. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> it's very on brand. That's right. <laughs> now, McCoy's idea of rehabilitating a witness who changed his testimony is to bring up Logan and admit to his own police misconduct. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's your testimony that that's what you did to Mr. Barnett? Yes. Have you been charged with coercion? No. How nice. And Logan is like, bitch, I'm a white New York City police officer. I could punch your client and not even lose my job. <laughs> you think I'm worried about getting arrested? <laughs> For admitting that Fuck I stood off. outside someone's apartment and yeah. threatened to out him? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was actually, I didn't understand the tactic at all. As you alluded to before, it made no sense to rehabilitate a witness by proving that he also lied to a different person. (laughs) The person he lied to in the courtroom. A little weird. Yeah. I think that it was an excuse to make Logan shift and look uncomfortable and say the word homicide. Are you familiar with an expression some police officers use to describe a murder in a gay neighborhood even before they know the circumstances of the crime. I'm not sure what you're referring to. I think you do, detective. Do I have to bring in witnesses who have heard you say it? Can I avoid that embarrassment? They call it homicide. If you remember that phrase, yes. that oh, yeah, I do. phrase, homicide. Yes. What did the yes. cops used to call it? Homicide. I mean, it's not great. It's like so much better than I was afraid of something he was going to say. I'm like, it's going to be something real bad. Yeah. It's going to be like an F word, not the fuck one, the other one. It's going to be something like that. Yeah. And then he said a homo side. And I was like, I mean, that's just a different pronunciation of the actual word. (laughs) I will will say I was a little confused. I don't know if you guys were. I was confused by the implication from Powell that of all of the gay violence between gay men i just that never seems to me in sort of the history of how um gay men are portrayed 
violent, incredibly violent, like riots killing each other and domestic yeah. violence never seemed to be one of those things. So I was, I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but it just came no. out of nowhere when he was like, Listen. don't you know that every week you go and you arrest all these men for beating the crap out of each other? And I was going, really? I don't, I never yeah. heard that. I mean, there's, there's hints at sort of almost all of the gay stereotypes where you have, okay, two gay men who are going to be super violent towards each other. They love quarreling. Right. Or... I think there was sort of a, a scene in the elevator where they kind of, you know, Riley say, oh, you know, yeah, they're so effeminate that they'll, you know, that they can't do it either. You know, right. they, it just kind of it also portrayed the gay political activists as wanting everything right now. Right? Yeah, why not? And not why not? And not knowing the art of political compromise. Oh, come and on. What, yeah. They were right, though, and they got it like a decade later. So good. Well, for them. wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I'm not saying that they don't just they shouldn't ask for every. I, it shows them as being not understanding anything about politics. Listen, and and, and it's portrayed as like, well, oh, they're divisive. It's, it's a human know. rights issue. They were right. I think understanding. I don't put politics words in aside, my mouth. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that this is the way when they're talking about a dangerous 1990. Five yes. gay political action. This is what the writers are thinking. I think you're right. Everybody's unstable in this episode, unfortunately. Yes, which, yeah. which doesn't, which doesn't, you know, doesn't do well to any side of this. So yeah, it was. I was, but you know, the portrayal of gay men as like the Bloods versus the Crips or something. I was a little <laughs> confused, but whatever. I mean, and then that's when Logan has that, you know, Chris Noth and his sort of sexy looking down pose when he's like homo, homo sides, and I thought, oh. Poor Logan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> being forced to say something like that. Okay, a couple of things here. Originally, the network wanted to change this to two lesbians, hmm. but the writers fought back. They said that the power dynamic of gay men in politics in 1995 was more threatening, would make for a better story. Hmm. I also don't think Logan would be such a hero if he punched out a lesbian. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> The same people might look at that a little differently. Well, he didn't punch a gay man. He punched a homophobe. This is true. It was very yeah. exciting. I was sure. actually like, you almost made up for that whole undecided comment earlier. Almost. Not quite, but almost. Almost. So why did Chris Noth leave Law & Order? Uh, well, the public story is that Briscoe and Logan's characters were too much alike, mm-hmm. uh, which didn't make for good drama, right? See, you want to have said, opposite people. Eeyore. It was the Eeyore yeah. thing. They're both kind of ad, sad Eeyores. Also in his sixth year, though, uh, Chris would be entitled to a huge pay bump that they really couldn't afford. But also Noth admits that he uh, he didn't get along with the new executive producer, and he was in the tabloids a lot because his girlfriend model, Beverly Johnson, they were always getting into scuffles or whatever. She actually would later go on to a be a, an accuser of Bill Cosby. Hmm. Uh, she accused him in Vanity Fair. So anyway, he said that he gave you know Dick Wolf no reason to keep him, and they were you know it was bitter for a while. But on his last day on the set, a bunch of the crew, including Jill Hennessy, uh, mooned him wearing underwear that spelled out "I heart Logan" one letter Aww. at a time, including Jill. Yeah. So outside the court, Crossley runs into a literal woke mob. <laughs> And in this melee, Crossley insinuates to Logan that we're on the same side, i.e. you hate homosexuals, too. Yeah. The history of the show, he may not be wrong about Logan. Oh, no. Logan's a bigot, like, in a hundred different ways. He shows it all the time. Logan is interesting because he is a character of contradictions. He's the rebel with the dart, with the leather coat, but he also wears this American flag pin. So in a way, so he's also a rule guy and a rule breaker, and that there's times when he's very pro-feminist agenda 
and other times where he rolls his eyes at gay people and makes a joke. So he is a kind of a, a character full of, of different contradictions. One that always comes up as everybody's favorite detective, which is funny. He's not my favorite detective. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it contradictions or is it just inconsistent writing from like a big writer's room where they write different episodes and people right. aren't in the room is, when other people are Is he a bad character room? or is he an Archie Bunker? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I think you guys exactly hit it just right. I think different writers came in and saw something different in Logan each time. And sometimes he's the bad guy and sometimes he's the stickler. He's a bigot. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he's got some problems. He got some problems. But he's in Staten Island now, so that's not the problem, right? Exactly. Sure. Exactly. And how does he get there? He punches a guy. Good for him. Hey, perverts! We're on the same side and you don't know it! Look, it's not a shooting. It's not a fatal car accident. It's not being a lesbian. It's designed to exit him from the show, but keep the door open for him. Agreed? Yes, but let's talk about this for a second. All right. Amaro, famously in SVU, was also exiled from his job to a beat cop role for punching a guy. Yeah, but he, but he didn't really leave the show. No, he didn't leave the show. And I just wonder, like, this just seemed very hasty. And very strange. And I like every part of 2021 me is like, it's bad. He should get demoted for punching somebody. He's a cop. Like, he shouldn't do that. At the same time, as a viewer, you're like, yes, that guy is a gay baiting pig, as he's called from the courtroom. And, you know, watching him get punched was extremely satisfying. So I don't know if I would have had him leave for this in such an unceremonious way. I mean, he didn't get a goodbye party. We didn't get to see any of that stuff. So what do you think will happen to him? He'll be walking a beat in Staten Island for two and a half to five. He'll be fine. Yeah, well, so what do you think? We just last week, Kate, we did uh, Lenny Briscoe's final episode. Mm-hmm. His exit from the show, which was a little unsentimental, but he announced he's retiring and walks out with a box. In this case, we have who was at the time the most popular character on the show. Yeah. And it's a quick punch and he's gone. Do you think that that was the best way to handle Logan? Would you have, would you have made him exit in a different way? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that in some ways that seems appropriate given his character, right? I mean, sort of, um, I mean, is he really going to have a going away party? Probably not. I mean, he wasn't, (laughs) he never struck me as somebody, he struck me as a hardworking cop, right? But not someone who was necessarily personal with anybody there, right? So I don't know. It seems, I think for fans, it's probably unsettling for the law and order world. I think it was appropriate. And certainly like a violent act, a sort of uh, um, knee-jerk reaction seems on brand for him and character for him. But I can understand people watching five seasons of this guy being really disappointed with the way it ended. I feel like with every show, with every character, anytime somebody that something ends there's just never a perfect ending you know right. so so i was pretty torn by it i can see why it it was disconcerting and i remember it being disconcerting at the time because there's no wind up there's no this is going to happen it's just sort of being pushed off a cliff and that's really difficult for people so and also i'm not sure this was the strongest season finale this episode, I mean, right. it, it was a hot button topic. It was a big storyline uh, and there was action, but it wasn't as dazzling. Like it came down to government and somebody feeling like they were going to be written out and not the sexiest storyline in the world. So it kind of ended in a whimper for me. But yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was no Claire getting killed by a drunk driver. No, yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> and, and considering more people have broken their necks slipping on the blood on the stairs of that courthouse 
getting punched on the stairs of the courthouse seems to be pretty tame. Yeah. Yeah. You know what was interesting to me? I was thinking about this today. What's that? I think the Law & Order franchise, more than any other television show, got viewers used to a revolving, ever-changing cast. It's true. Yep. Because, you know, if you think about the first couple of seasons, like, the original two cops are just, like, gone. <laughs> it just, like, changes immediately. Yeah. And then, you know, when someone would leave, I, as a viewer... Like almost look forward to seeing who's coming next. Like a DA leaves, I wonder who it's going to be next. Yeah. And it's like it's like Doctor Who, o- exactly. What <laughs> other show besides Doctor Who and Law and Order like has trained us to not just embrace change, but feel like it's an opportunity every time there's a change. Well, like CSI, boy, that talk about rotating people. CSI is constantly between all of their franchises. Also, boy, there's constantly characters coming in and out. You're right. Yeah, yeah, and I, I feel like that's a very like the, that Dick Wolf like socialize that in a weird way. You know what I mean? Well, Nathan Wolf would reconcile again. A couple years later, they did a TV movie called Exiled. Logan is in the Domestic Disputes Bureau in which he uh, ends up. Domestic Disputes. Jesus Christ. (laughs) What a freaking softball name. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he returns to Manhattan and the 27th Precinct to solve a case in which he uncovered which detective took kickbacks from a mobster and helped him dispose of the body of a dead hooker. Profaci. Profaci did that. Profaci. Then after a one-off appearance on Criminal Intent, Logan came back for a couple of seasons uh, doing regular split duty. Yeah. So when D'Onofrio needed to... Time off to rest his method. To rest his method. (laughs) To lie on his fainting couch. He got to hang out with Annabella Shura. In, In Criminal Intent, the character Logan still carries that newspaper in his wallet. The front page, he'll take it out and look at it. The one with the, it says, Cop Pops Paul. Hmm. So it's, you know, certainly it's the thing that they they did carry that bit of his character over into Hmm. uh, his return to New York. Can we just talk about the fact that they named it the Domestic Disputes Unit? It's like that's the unit that investigates who forgot to take out the trash. It right? is. That's it's the, the domestic and bunnies unit. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's not a very so hard name. The plan had been to do multiple TV movies with uh, Logan, but Exiled was not terribly well received and really didn't bring us, uh, you know, a desire to do more. But it did bring us a new actor into the Wolf universe. Who's that? Ice-T appeared as a pimp who was later killed with a bowling pin. Hmm. You want Logan's line? Ready? Yeah. Whoa, talk about your 710 split, fellas. Oh, my God. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know. This story takes some cues from the assassination of Harvey Milk. A Korean War veteran, the native New Yorker moved to San Francisco and opened a camera shop on Castro Street in 1973. As more gay men like Milk flocked to the area, their political influence grew. After a sales tax dispute with the city, Milk decided to run for office. During his first campaign, Milk looked like any other long-haired, anti-war, pot-smoking, counter-culture hippie. 
He lost twice, but changed his look to be more professional. His influence in the neighbourhoods grew, and in 1977 he won a seat as city supervisor, making him the first openly gay elected official in California. While in office, Milk championed a variety of anti-discrimination and progressive measures. In November 1978, Supervisor Dan White resigned, but quickly asked Mayor George Moscone to rescind the move. Instead, the mayor called a press conference to announce his replacement. White sneaked into City Hall with a handgun and shot Moscone. He left the mayor's office in search of milk, found him in the hallway and shot him five times. In the years since his death, Milk has become an inspirational figure in gay culture. In 2009, Barack Obama posthumously awarded Harvey Milk with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. White's trial became famous for the Twinkie defense. Yeah, sort of. That You know, I, I did some reading on it and it sounded like the, the Twinkie defense was initially like what junk food made him kind of go crazy. It sounded like, from what I read it through, the, I was reading through trial transcripts because I, th- I just find this case so interesting. White had some pretty major depression and right. he made a mistake by resigning. He was from a conservative district and he felt like he was always kind of fighting an upward battle against the more liberal supervisors who were, you know, like Harvey Milk. And, um, of course, the mayor, Moscone, were, were liberal and, you know, pushing a different agenda. So when he resigned and then wanted his job back, I th- and, and then when he was thwarted, he went through this depression. And the, the Twinkie defense, I think, was brought up slightly, but not as much as the media um, made it seem. Yeah, they were arguing diminished capacity they due were. to his depression. And they were saying that it, his eating of the junk food was supposed to be, like, a sign of that, right. you know, uh, that issue. But one reporter coined the phrase Twinkie, Twinkie defense, defense and it's stuck. Yeah. Anyway, now it's a catch-all phrase for an improbable defense, hmm. even making some law, uh, some Supreme Court briefs. So Milk and White had aligned on some issues, including opposition to a mental health facility being placed in White's district. So at some points, they were different politically, but they would find some common ground on yeah. some issues. But NIMBY then, issues? They were the NIMBY issues together. The NIMBY right? issues? <laughs> uh, but later when he found out more about what this mental health facility was, Milk switched his vote. Good for him. And so that was the stab in the back to him. So he opposed everything you know, that Milk championed. And so that was one of the reasons why he was a, a secondary target to the mayor is that he had a real grudge against Milk not just because of his sexual orientation, but also it was political and personal in that way. It sounds like too. it was more political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen the film Milk with uh, yeah. with uh, Sean, Sean Penn. Penn. Yeah, yeah. Didn't it win an Oscar, or it was at least it nominated? Did. A Navy shipyard in San Diego is currently building the USNS Harvey Milk. Nice. Yeah, it's the first U.S. Navy vessel named for a gay leader. It's an underway replenishment oiler. So what this ship does is it brings fuel and supplies to ships that are already at sea. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to come back to port. They, I guess they deliver. They're like Amazon, I guess. You know, <laughs> they come up and Milk had been a Lieutenant JG in the Navy. So it's an appropriate honor, I believe. <laughs> uh, one of his greatest political accomplishments was getting a pooper scooper law passed. Nice. Was the one of the originators of that. So That's polls, a good law. Look, polls show that one of the biggest concerns of San, Fr- San Francisco residents was dog excrement. Yeah. Yeah. So what he did is he had a press conference where he quote, accidentally 
stepped in dog shit for the camera in front nice. of a bunch of reporters. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, well, look what happened here. By the way, stepping in dog shit is exactly what every politician needs to do once he gets in. <laughs> he eventually finds himself stepping in something. That's true. Well, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Kate Dawson. Kate, where can our listeners follow you online? Uh, so we're at Tenfold More Wicked on Instagram and Tenfold More on Twitter. And then we are launching a new show, brand new show, in May, uh, May 17th which is called Wicked Words, where I, in, I interview journalists just like me about best true crime stories that they have to tell. Fantastic. And Rebecca Lavoy, how can our listeners follow you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. And you can tweet to us at Law & Order Pod and follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. Go to lawandorderpodcast.com, sign up for our newsletter, and a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.